Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host for today, Shatranjay Maul. Today I'm speaking with Professor Yin Chao about his new book, Chinese Sojourners in Wartime Raj, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2022. So today's a special interview, as this is the first time that I'm interviewing a returning guest. Uh, I previously interviewed Professor Chow in June 2022 about his first book, From Policemen to Revolutionaries. Professor Chow is an associate professor of history at Tsinghua University in Beijing. His areas of research included global history, modern Indian history, the British Empire, and India-China connections. So welcome back to the New Books Network, Professor Chow. Thank you so much, Santarji. So for those in our audience who haven't listened to your previous interview and aren't familiar with your work, could you reintroduce yourself? Where did you grow up and how did you become a scholar working on India-China connections? Well, thank you so much first. And uh, I'm really happy to be here again. I, I still remember we did this last year. So I grew up in China and then I went to Singapore for my PhD studies. And when I was in Singapore, I find that it's a really interesting place because it's really a place where India and China meet, right? So when I choose a topic for my scholarship, I think, well, I can do something that can combine India, China, and Southeast Asia, right? So the first book is about this Indian Sikh uh, from, the, from the Punjab. Uh, who spends their, their 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 lives in in Singapore, Hong Kong, and and Shanghai, right? So that's my first book, the Sikh diaspora in global Shanghai, which is about the the Sikh diasporic network, uh, revolutionary, and also the migrationary network, uh, based in Shanghai. And then when I write the first book, the last chapter of my first book, which I which is about uh, Subhas Chandra Bose, right? And uh, he spends a few days in, 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 in China during the Second World War. And uh, in a broadcast he, he made to the Chongqing regime, uh, who is an enemy to, uh, to the friend uh, Subhas Chandra Bose in, in Nanjing. And uh, Subhas Chandra Bose said, the, the Chongqing regime betrayed Indians. They sent troops, they sent uh, hooligans to India to help the British imperialists to oppress uh, the Indians. Then when I read this sentence, I got very excited. I, I asked myself, who are these Chinese hooligans in, in India? Who helped the British imperialists? That's why I write this book, the second book, The Chinese Soldiers in Wartime Raj, and which is about this investigation of the experience, uh, wartime experience of the Chinese soldiers, deserters, sailors, right, and, and, and smugglers in, in India during the Second World War. So thank you here again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I mean, it's so interesting how your research for your first book and um, sort, of, sort of your investigation to Subhash Chandra Bose led to this topic. I feel like there's so much more research one could do about Subhash Chandra Bose and his connection with Wang Jingwei. But it's so it, it's so fascinating that you your your interest was caught by uh, the story of these Chinese sojourners. Um, so my next question, I think you've already sort of um, begun to answer it. Um, but I mean, I, I, I can just um, ask you 
you anyway. Um, so uh, it's this deeply fascinating and engaging account of uh, these Chinese uh, individuals like sailors, smugglers, deserters and pilots and so on who ended up in India during World War II. Um, and I can see that it's this big um, contribution um, to the field, uh, to, to both East Asian and South Asian studies because you put modern China and India in the same conceptual frame by telling a social history. Um, so what do you see as its major arguments and contributions? Well, the major argument of this book, of this book is that this post-war political tensions, there are geopolitical tensions between India and China. Normally we think that, well, it's about debate. It's about these uh, borderlands and boundary issues, right? And uh, my argument in this book is that, well, it might not totally be contributed or attributed to these geopolitical issues. Its root, the tension, the geopolitical tension between India and China in the post-war world, its root may also be in these uh, wartime experience of these Chinese soldiers. It is these Chinese soldiers and their activities caused these colonial anxieties of the British Raj. And then the anxieties of the British Raj being inherited by post-colonial Indian state. And that's why the Indian state, the independent Indian government, they got so, so nervous and anxious towards the Chinese whether it's Chinese nationalist government or Chinese communist government, their uh, their existence and uh, and and uh, that's why the Indians never trust the Chinese even today, right? It's based in it's rooted in this wartime soldiers experience here. So that's the main argument and the contribution to our understanding of why China and India even today we cannot get along well with with each other. Right. It's a very it's a long forgotten story. I think not so many people have ever explored the experience of uh, of this this Chinese soldiers in India. We have studies on Chinese migrants or so-called Indian Chinese, right? But for these soldiers, they stayed in India for just a few years. They were never migrants, right? Very few of them finally settled down in India. But just for this a few years experience, they changed, they transformed, or they shaped the post-war India-China tensions or post-war India-China relations. So that's the new findings and argument of this book. That's really intriguing uh, to hear. I think it sort of adds like a new perspective on India-China connections, as you said. And maybe that also provides an explanation for why during the Sino-Indian conflict of 1962, so many um, Ch Chinese, um, so many Chinese people living in India were rounded up and sent to uh, internment camps, which I think you also discuss later um, in the book. Um, so I'll, I'll ask you a little more about the book in a moment. But before we talk about the chapters. Could you tell us a little more about your research for the book? Uh, where did you do your research and what archives and sources did you access? Yeah, they, the resources is actually very, very international or transnational, right? Because when we try to write a book or do a research of this Chinese soldiers in India, first of all, we need to go to India and, uh, and uh, UK, right? To, to explore this British Library Indian Office records. But unfortunately, for most of the time when I write this book, it's pandemic, right? It's really restricted my travel because I cannot travel to anywhere uh, to collect the archives. Right? But fortunately, I, I begin this project one or two years before this uh, pandemic. So I went to UK. I went to India, basically in uh, New Delhi and 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 also in Calcutta. Uh, and uh, and and uh, uh, I also I got a chance to visit the United States, and I find quite an interesting archives in uh, in the National Archives in the United States in College Park. And 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 uh, and I also used the archives in China, of course, and and Taiwan. 
So basically, these primary sources I collected is very international. We have Chinese primary sources, Indians, and 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 British, and also American archives. And I combine them together to try to write a very social story from below, right? Supporting experience of of these people, but it's also very. Limited, or or I I have to confess that there are quite a lot of limitation. Not only because of this uh, pandemic restrictions, but also because of the uh, general problem of writing social history or writing supporting stories. Because they never talk, they never they, they never write by themselves, right? So for most of the primary sources, they are just a, a official archives that was written by or. Or organized by the state, right? So the primary sources actually were official archives, but we have to rely on these official records to write the story of these ordinary people or supporters, right? So for most of the time, or, or generally speaking, there existed the limitations of only relying on these primary sources, but what else we can do, right? We can only extract the details and and extract as possible as we can to try to restore the experience of these ordinary people. Yeah, that's my experience uh, ex- collecting and 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 uh, doing my archival research. That's great. Thank you. Um, I yeah. I mean, it's um, it's wonderful that you were still able to write the book despite the restrictions of the pandemic. And hopefully now uh, other scholars can sort of build on what you've written to sort of investigate new materials and archives. Um, and and I think many uh, many many scholars in 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 history, but also in, I guess in other fields, will sort of relate to the problem you narrate about how it's difficult to sometimes write histories of ordinary people or subaltern um, histories. But it's still great that you were able to tell like a social history of India-China connections is something that many people don't end up doing because it often becomes, as you said, like diplomatic history or sort of history of elite uh, political figures. So after discussing the argument and structure of the book in the introduction, uh, in chapter one, you cover conscripted Chinese sailors and seamen who found themselves in Calcutta during World War II. Uh, So could you tell us more about them and about their complex relationship with the Chinese nationalist government? It's very interesting because there are, actually there are a lot of researchers uh, research of the uh, Chinese sailors during Second World War because tens I mean thousands of them worked for the Allies in Allies ships and uh, and and uh, quite a lot of research focused on their, their experience in the UK, right. Even now, you can find some documentaries and 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 the novels and the literary literary works that is focusing on their experience in the UK. But very few studies ever focused on their study on their on their experience in in other countries, especially in India. That's why I find it interesting because when I looked into an archives of a Chinese nationalist government. I find quite a lot of these stories happening in India. The Allies they recruited the Chinese sailors working in their ships, and at that time, India, especially the port of Bombay and Calcutta, were the top of transportation of the Allies. And these Chinese sailors working on the Allied ships, they stayed in Bombay and they stayed in Calcutta for a long time, right? And when they stayed in Bombay and Calcutta in these Indian cities, they become problems for both the, 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 the British government, the British Indian government, and, and, and the Chinese nationalist government. Why? Because the British, uh, the British Indian government, they, 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 they thought that these Chinese sailors, they were too expensive. We can use Indian sailors. Right before the war, of course, that if you want to go to China, right, if you are doing a China UK shipping line, you can employ these Chinese sailors because it was cheap. But during the war, most of Chinese ports were occupied by the Japanese, so the Chinese they can no longer go to China. So at that time, why we still employ these Chinese sailors? We cannot send them back to home. 
That's why when these Chinese sailors they arriving in India during the war, they lost their job. They lost their job, right? So when they lost their job, uh, there was a contract between them and the British shipping companies. So according to the contract, the British shipping companies can terminate their contract, but they also had to send these Chinese sailors back to China, back to their hometowns. But because it's a wartime, the British shipping companies they cannot send them back to the back to China. So they had to, according to the contract, they had to pay their leaving expense. Right. So the, the the problem is that the British they, they they didn't want to pay this because they don't know when the war will end. So if the war didn't end, they have to keep paying this money to the salaries or these basic living expen expenses to the Chinese sellers. They cannot burden. They cannot you know burden this this cost, right? And for the Chinese nationalist government, they have their own thinkings because they thought, well, these Chinese sailors, they were actually, they were very, the very important neighbors for the state building projects, right? The, the Chinese officials, they really think that we, they can make use of the skills and the labor of these Chinese sailors to, to build their own power, to, to build a very strong labor force. So, at that time, the British and the Chinese officials, the authorities, they choose to cooperate to try to train these Chinese sailors into a useful labor force in India. So the British, they said, okay, we can provide some basic you know, money for the Chinese to organize them. And then the Chinese authorities said, okay, we can send our agents, send our officials to India to help the British organize and discipline these uh, Chinese sailors. Right. That's the funding of the Chinese sailors' cooperation in, uh, in India, the establishment of the Chinese sailors' wartime cooperation in, in India. Right. But my argument in this chapter is that where is agency of these Chinese sailors themselves? They didn't want to be disciplined or organized by either the China, the British or the or the or the Chinese authorities, right? They just want to have some better life livelihood, right? So there is a tension between the Chinese sailors on the one side and the British and the Chinese authorities on the other side, right? But if you read this, this chapter, you find that the, the, the Chinese sailors, they won this battle, right? They manipulate the, 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 the situation in India for their own benefits, right? Sometimes they run away. Sometimes they even you know, protest against the, the, the Chinese and the, and the British authorities on the streets of Kakata. Right, so there are a lot of interesting stories and episodes happened in nineteen forty two and nineteen forty three when the two sides tried to you know try to uh, uh, battle for each other and 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 and, and try to uh, win the this game. Right, so so you read this this chapter, you find wow, it's not only about the. A social history of the or everyday life of the Chinese sailors in Calcutta and and in Bombay. It's really about how the state, how colonial state and the nationalist state, try to discipline the subjects in a foreign country, and how these ordinary people find a lot of ways to resist the the the, the state building projects. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's an important reminder that, um, you know, these so sailors and soldiers and so on who were ended up in places like um, India from China, like they were not, they, they were, they were not necessarily their, their objectives did not necessarily align with, for example, even their own government, that they were just seeking like a better life. Um, so, so, so that was really fascinating. So in the second chapter, you shift your focus to the transnational network of India-China smuggling during World War II. 
Could you tell us more about the smugglers and the ways in which attempts to manage and control them influenced relations between the Chinese nationalist government and the British Indian uh, colonial government? Well, uh, I mean, these two chapters, the first chapter, the, the sailors, and the second chapter, the smugglers, actually they were entangled. And because some some sailors, they turned themselves into smugglers, right? And also the next chapter, the deserters, right? They also turned themselves into smugglers. So here, smugglers is not only for merchants, it's for everyone. Actually, I would say that during the wartime, in this India-China smuggling, Americans, British, Indians, Chinese, they were all involved in this smuggling because it's very profitable. Why? Because after the fall of Burma, the only way for China to connect with the outside world is through India, right? Of course, they can have some, you know, Central Asia route uh, with Soviet Union, right? But it's very limited. So the India-China smuggling route is the main way for the Chinese officials, for Chinese authorities, and for ordinary Chinese people to get these uh, foreign commodities. And... Uh, from the Indian side, it's also very interesting because it's a wartime and the Indian government strictly restrict export of almost all of their commodities, medicines, uh, gold, right? even fountain pens were restricted uh, uh, to, to, to export. Right? So from the Indian side, they didn't want to export anything to China. And from the Chinese side, both the Chinese government and the Chinese people want to export, want to import, want to buy commodities in India or through India, right? So here is the tension here. And if you find this tension, you will know that it's, this smuggling is very profitable, right? Because you cannot buy these commodity, foreign commodities through legal channels. Then what else you can do? You can only rely on smuggling, right? And from that moment, a lot of Chinese smugglers, sailors or deserters or merchants, they find this opportunity. So they flocked to India, basically in Calcutta. So this, this chapter is about the Calcutta's smuggling activities. I also find that their smuggling activities in other some border towns, right? I mean, this India-China border towns, but uh, Kolkata actually is a hub and uh, is a center of this smuggling activities. And uh, and it's very interesting that I, I in this chapter, I have three smugglers who rent a same room. So they have a same building, but in this building, there are three smugglers used this building for their smuggling uh, activities, for storing their, their uh, commodities, their goods, right? And the first smuggler was, uh, actually he, he was a merchant. He was an ordinary merchant who used to do this uh, business in, in, in French Indochina and, and British Burma. And uh, after the war, after the fall of Burma, he fled to, to Calcutta and continued this business by smuggling medicines, I mean, Western medicines from India to, to China. He made a great profit and he even hired an American pilot for him to, to do this business because at that time, Indian China smuggling road or India-China road, India-China connections was normally a airborne road. So you have to use the aircraft, right, to transport the communities, transport soldiers and all these supplies from India to China, right? So who were the pilots of this aircraft between India and China? Very few Chinese could manage this kind of very dangerous so-called hump road because it's very dangerous. You have to fly across the Himalayas. It's a very dangerous uh, air road. So most of these pilots were Americans, American pilots, right? And the American pilots, they were exempted from checking in the customer, both in India and China. <laughs> That's why that, that means they can bring 
smuggling commodities in in their luggage and then in their pocket and then without being checked so uh, across the border and 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 bring these commodities into China so that's why a lot of Chinese merchants at that time they find this opportunity of hiring American pilots or inviting American pilots into their smuggling guns and help them to smuggle goods and commodities from India to, to China. So this is the first smuggler. He was smart, right? He hired American for his business. And the second smuggler, who was also a merchant, but who didn't hire Americans, this guy, he was a merchant. He was a Chinese citizen. Right, he was an ordinary citizen, but he find another another channel, that is to produce a fake document of of Chinese military personnel in in Calcutta. So at that time, according to the China British uh, agreements, the all Chinese military personnel were exempted from uh, exempted by checking in in the customers in India, right? So that's a part of this Chinese state building projects, right? In, I mean, for the Chinese nationalist government, they always want to promote their national status, right? And uh, one achievement for this state building projects is that to. Uh, to 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 earn their military officers a status a a privileged status in India, that that means when the Chinese military personnel enter into India, they can enjoy some privileges. For example, the Indian customers cannot check their luggage, right? So. The, the Chinese businessmen and merchants, they saw this opportunity. If we can produce ourselves as a Chinese military personnel, I mean, buy some fake documents in India, in India's, uh, in Calcutta's Chinatowns. So at that time, there are a lot of this kind of the fake documents factories in Calcutta, which is specifically making uh, this fake documents for Chinese deserters and the Chinese businessmen, right? So the second Chinese merchant here we mentioned, he bought a fake military personnel document in Calcutta. And with this document in hand, he can smart his commodities without being checked by, by Indian customer and bring them from India to, to China to sell. He made a great money. By doing this, right, to pre to 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 pretend himself as a Chinese military personnel, and then third smuggler, this guy is a Chinese military personnel. Actually, he's an authentic. He's a real guy. He's a real one. Right. He worked for the Yunnan government, but at that time, the Yunnan government, the local authorities, they were also lack of a lot of supplies, lack of medicines. So the local government sent this guy to India to try to buy some supplies and medicines and bring them back to, to Yunnan. But the problem is that the lack of adequate document to bring him from China to India. So the local government bought him some fake documents and sent him to India to do smuggling for the government, for the local authorities. So this is a very, also very interesting uh, episode because we find that it's not the only personnel or individuals who joined this India-China smuggling. Even local authorities, they were part of this India-China smuggling. So the government approved or the government supported their own officials to do this smuggling for themselves. For the government, right? So the third guy who was authorized by the uh, the Yunnan government and and, uh, and 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 came to India to to bought to buy the medicines and 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 uh, try to smuggle them from Yunnan to to China. 
uh, from from India to from India to China. So unfortunately, that in in the day in two thousand in nineteen forty. Uh, 41, uh, 42, 41, and 41. They were arrested by Indian police on the charge of smuggling, <laughs> right? And and uh, the first guy, the first guy we mentioned before, was even executed by the Chinese national nationalist government because of these smuggling activities. In the end of this chapter, I analyze why the Chinese government was so angry with this smuggling, right? I think it's also a part of state-building projects of the Chinese nationalist government because, because the British, actually, they didn't care about this kind of smuggling because in the wartime, smuggling are everywhere, right? So... The Jew, uh, in this chapter, I also said that some Jewish people they also took part in this uh, wartime smuggling in, between India and the Middle East, right? So smuggling was so common and widespread in India at the time. So it's not very special for the British authorities in India, and for the Chinese authorities, smuggling was everywhere. But why is the central government in? In Chongqing at that time was so nervous of this India-China smuggling, so I analyzed this very special case and I said, well, the Chinese government was not so worried about the smuggling itself; they were worried about China's image or China's status or China's state building projects in the eyes of its allies. Chiang Kai-shek himself specifically. Find that he was losing face in front of the allies because a lot of Chinese, you know, took part in this smuggling and uh, and inter- very interestingly that Chiang Kai Shek was ashamed by these activities. He tried to project China as a great power, as a civilized power, in the eyes of the allies. But but his soldiers, his businessmen. Were doing this kind of the smuggling in, in in India, which ashamed him. Right, that's why he was so angry. He was not angry about smuggling himself itself, but he was angry about this this illegal activities in India conducted by the Chinese. Right, that's why he ordered it directly to execute uh, uh, Chen Mengzhao, the Chinese businessman, the first one we mentioned uh, in 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 Chongqing, nineteen forty-two. So that I think that's a that's a second chapter, that's a second story of this Chinese soldiers. And also, I mean, in a broader view, we can find how the Chinese state building projects were conducted in India, which was very. Uh, not so many people ever studied this aspect. I mean, a lot of people have already done a great scholarship on China's state building projects in China itself. How to discipline, how to you know control and and manage manpower during Second World War in China, right? But very few ever pay attention to to these overseas state building projects in India, especially, yeah. Right, and how these ordinary Chinese people, these merchants, right, these deserters and sellers, they make use of the China's the building projects to 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 make profits for themselves. I mean, whether these Chinese merchants and the deserters, they make use of the China's the building project. For example, the Chinese nationalists come to try to promote the status of their soldiers and their military personnel. That's why there's a Sino-British agreement, right, on this exemption of a custom check on the border, on the border, uh, on the border, and. It is because of this China's state building projects that the merchants find the opportunity. Well, we can, right? We can make ourselves a fake identity, make ourselves as military personnel, and then we can, you know, just cross the border without being checked, right? So, how these ordinary people then make use of these state building projects to 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 promote their own their own pro. Uh, benefits, 
So that's a, that's a also a two-way interactions, right? It's not only about how the state try to discipline the the subjects, the, the, the ordinary people. It's also about how how ordinary people you know, manipulate the state building projects to for their own benefits. So that's the second chapter. Thank you. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, especially what intri- intrigued me about this chapter was sort of the micro history, historical approach. At least what I I think it's like almost like a micro history, but at the same time you sort of say that it had like these broader implications and what it tells us about China's state building project itself and the fact that someone like Chiang Kai-shek was nervous about smugglers and smuggling and what that does to China's image. Which means more, he's sort of more focused on that than the smuggling per se. So that that sort of tells us a lot i think about um you know like 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 modern china and the chinese nationalists um and sort of you you sort of bring forth this um this sort of neglected aspect of um the china india interactions and sort of what that tells us about china in and of itself um so um, uh, in chapter three, you discuss the Chinese expeditionary force. It is the CEF and the large scale desertion from this unit during World War II. Um, you discuss specifically, uh, you, you specifically focus in this chapter on a Chinese deserter in India who was supposedly named uh, Chen Ching Lin. Um, so I think you mentioned that the, there's in, increasing interest within China about the CEF, but actually uh, many people outside China may not even know about the CEF. Um, so, and that includes may, maybe many people in our audience uh, who might not know anything about the CEF. So, could, CEF. So, could you tell us a little bit more about them, and what do you uncover about them, about the CEF, and about desertion from their ranks um, that you discuss in this chapter? Yeah, this is also a very interesting episode indeed. Okay, when the Japanese invaded Burma in 1941-1942, right, the British, they thought that they cannot defend Burma by themselves because lack of power. So they invited the Chinese Nationalist government to send a troop to help them to defend Burma at that time, right? That's why the Chinese Nationalist government uh, organized uh, an expeditionary force and entered into Burma in 1942 and uh, and tried to fight fight against the Japanese. So that's the origin of the Chinese expeditionary force, or CEF, right? So they're fighting Burma, but they were defeated by the Japanese in 1942. And then the British, of course, they retreated back from Burma to to, to India. But at that time, it's a very great challenge for the CEF. It's a very hard situation there because they have two ways left. One is to follow the British to retreat to India. The other way is to retreat back to China. But the retreating road was cut off by the Japanese. Uh, so they have no other options, right? But Chiang Kai-shek at that time didn't want his troops stayed in India because he was afraid that his troops staying in India, they will be controlled by the British, right? He thought then Zhang will lost some of his very elite troops. So he didn't want this. So he ordered the CEF to retreat to China anyway through the mountains in northern Burma, right? And it's, it's uh, mountains, full of mountains and jungles. There's actually no road. There was no road. So more than 50% of the CEF soldiers died on the retreating road, right? But one division of the CEF, they disobeyed Chiang Kai-shek's order. They, 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 they actually followed the British and entered into British India at the time. And then Americans, they find a chance. Americans, especially General Steelwell, he thought that, well, we Americans, we can supply weapons, supply, you know, the supplies to these Chinese troops in India and help them train themselves into a very modern unit. And then when they become modern enough, when they become qualified enough, they can go back to Burma to reconquest Burma, right? So at that time, Americans, they thought that they didn't want to send their troops to, to, to this India China Burma theater, right? They want to use 
the Chinese soldiers to fight against the Japanese in this theater. Right. So American government pressured pressed the the British and the Chinese government to agree this arrangement, and both the British and the Chinese agreed. So the British they 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 provided a a training base for the Chinese. So that's a training base, a Ramga in uh, northeast India, right? Ramga training base, and the Chinese they agreed to send their troops to 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 India for the training because Chiang Kai Shek at that time he thought that well, if the Americans would supply us weapons and give us training, then I can prepare well for future civil war against the communist forces, right? So he he was happy to you know to receive this American support, right? So that's the founding of this Chinese Expeditionary Force in India, the Ramna Training Force. But very interesting because there's a micro history in this chapter. I find that from the perspective of ordinary soldiers, they have different thinkings. Why Chinese soldiers want to come to India to be trained, right? And my finding is that well, because these Chinese soldiers they find well, when we stay in India, we can have American food, American clothing, and American salaries, which is very high and very stable, comparing with those soldiers who stayed in China, who were lack of food, lack of clothing, and lack of salaries. So that's why a lot of Chinese soldiers they. Bribed the recruiting officers and come to India, come to Ranga, right? But when they came to India, they have some different thinkings. Why? Because they find well, the tra- military training was very hard. But in India, we can find ordinary jobs. There are a lot of ordinary jobs in India, right? We don't need to go to the the the, the battlefield, go to the front line to fight against the Japanese. Sometimes you lost your lives in these battles, right? We can become ordinary people and have a very peaceful and prosperous life in India itself. That's why when they arrived in India, a lot of them deserted from the unit and find the jobs in Calcutta and other cities in 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 in, in India. Right. So our main uh, actor in this chapter, Chen Jingnian, was one of them who find a chance to desert from this Chinese training base and try to find a new life in India. But from the perspective of the British and the Chinese nationalist government, they have different different kind of views. For the British. They thought that well, we have already a lot of Chinese smuggling activities in in India. Now we have desertion, you know, activities in in India. There's Chinese deserters. From that moment, the British Indian government they begin to thought that they begin to think that these activities were actually conspiracies organized by the Chinese government to try to. To try to weaken the British colonial rule in in India, right? So it's a it's a government organized conspiracy, right? So the British were very nervous at the moment that they try to you know figure out how the Chinese you know sent a lot of these hooligans and deserters to India to try to disrupt the British rule, right? And but from 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 the eyes of the Chinese nationalist government, it's also a very serious problem because they don't want to lose face, you know, in front of their allies. Well, we send troops to India to to be trained, but most of our soldiers desert. It's really a shameful, right? I, in that last chapter, we thought that Chiang Kai Shek was was very frustrated of this Chinese ordinary people's behavior. In in India, right? So the Chinese government also want to discipline or want to control this desertion. So here again, we have a tension, right? The deserters they want to desert because they want to make a 
better livelihood in India. But the British, they they, they begin to suspect that the Chinese government were behind this desertion. But from the Chinese de- uh, government, they thought that they want to control the deserters because they don't want want to, you know, uh, 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 want to fail their state building projects, right? So we here we have a triangle interactions, right? And uh, our deserters they find uh, a lot of loopholes and uh, to 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 manipulate these tensions and uh, to to make profits, right? So that's a very interesting story. And uh, in this story, it's not only about this. Chinese state building projects and the response of ordinary people. It's also about the British colonial anxieties. They imagined, right? They imagined that the Chinese government they have some very, very conspiracy, right? And and have some big game, great game uh, design against the British colonial rule in India. And because this imagination, they organized a lot of this surveillance and, 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 and anti-China uh, intelligence gathering network in India to try to figure out and to try to control the, 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 the Chinese deserters' activities. Right? I think this chapter... The main argument is that because of these British Indian government's anxieties, they are imagining the anxieties against this Chinese desertion and, uh, and the Chinese government, right? This intelligence gathered against this, you know, Chinese activities were inherited by the independent Indian state after 1947. So most intelligence officers working for the Indian government, they used the intelligence gathered during Second World War, and that shaped their China policy, right? So I, my argument is that actually, when we think of this post-war India-China relations, we saw that Nehru was very friendly to China in the early 1950s, right? It's a very peaceful period for this India-China relations. But if you look at into the intelligence side, you'll find that from the very beginning of the Indian, you know, independent Indian period, the Indian intelligence officers or as the, the, the group of intelligence people, they begin to suspect the China from the very beginning, right? So that's the argument of this book. It's, it's all because of this desertion activities. Uh, yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, I, as you were speaking, I was just thinking of another um, incident, which um, which I think you mentioned at one point in the book about how Chiang Kai-shek and his wife, like they traveled to India and they met Gandhi and Nehru and how that sort of fed like the colonial anxieties and like that sort of made the uh, British sort of feel anxious about the deserters and they imagine that there's some sort of conspiracy. But actually what you reveal uh, through your microhistorical approach and through sort of investigating uh, the motive of these deserters is that it, the Chiang Kai-shek or the nationalists didn't really have control over, um, you know, the activities of these deserters and that these deserters had other motivations that led them um, to sort of, you know, abandon um, their, their, their role in like the Chinese expeditionary force and become part of the Chinese community in India and engage in all kinds of maybe businesses or sort of um, have like higher salaries and better living standards and more consumer goods and so on. Um, so in chapter four, you narrate the story of the Lahore uh, Elementary Flying Training School, that is LEFTS, and position its establishment and evacuation within the context of the end of World War II, the partition and independence of India and the Chinese Civil War. So basically, like there's a lot of things happening at this period from like 1945 or 1947 in, in India, in China and in the world. Um, and and this flying school is sort of established and then sort of evacuated. Uh, so could you share with us more about this flying training school and its significance as an episode in India-China connections during the 1940s and beyond? Well, that's a very, also a very interesting chapter, actually. It's a very little-known story that the one of the origins of modern China's air force was actually in Pakistan. I mean, at that time, it's British India. 
right? Nowadays, when you think of this military cooperation between China and Pakistan, you thought that well, Chinese, the Chinese they sell a lot of aircraft, military aircraft to the Pakistan Air Force. That's all, right? That Pakistan. They, they they have nothing to do with the development of, of China's you know air force development right so but if you look at the, this flying training school you find well wow this a lot of these very early stage Chinese pilots and the Chinese air force they got their training in Pakistan instead of UK or instead of United States right because if you look into story. Of the development of modern China's air force, you find that well, because of the Second World War, the Americans helped to train a lot of Chinese pilots, and uh, they did this in the United States, which means that the Chinese government they sent their pilots to the United States for the training, right? But I find it's not the it's not a whole story, right? Most of them didn't go to United States for the training. Actually, most of them end up in Pakistan, end up in Lahore. Right. So why? You may ask why? Why they set up this this training this pilot training school in, in Lahore? Right. The, the, the story behind this is that okay, from the beginning, the Chinese and and and, and, and Americans they did try to, you know, send the their cadres, their their students to the United States for the training, but after one or two rounds of the training, the Americans find that it's too costly, right? You have to send the Chinese from China to 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 India, and then you send them, you know, from India to Australia and from Australia to to the west coast of the United States. It's a long way, right? And after the arrival of these Chinese students, Americans soon find that most of them are not qualified for the training, not qualified, mentally and physically. So they have to send them back to China again, right? It's a waste of time, it's a waste of resources, especially during the wartime, right? So then the Chinese said, well, why not just set up a training school in India instead of the United States? And the Americans can send their, you know, their training officers to India to train the Chinese cadres. And the Americans said, okay, that's a fantastic idea, right? But the British didn't want, they didn't like this idea. Why? Because the British, they said, we are lack of resources in India, right? We didn't have aircraft, the training aircraft. We didn't have this air base for the training of the Americans. But the deep worry of the British is that they didn't want to see the development of a modern Chinese air force. Why? Because they begin, they already begin to suppose that the the Chinese will be a very strong rival in a post war world against the British rule in India. So they don't want to see the the rise of the of the Chinese modern air force. So they didn't want to help, right? But the Americans at that time they 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 threatened the 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 the, the British. They said, okay, if you don't want you don't agree this arrangement, then we will cut off some supplies to you in your war effort. But, you know, under this pressure, the British had to agree. So they said, okay, we have a deserted air base in Lahore, which is good because, which is, it, it, it used to be a training, training base, right? So they have adequate facilities. So it's good, maybe it's good for, for, for the Chinese to use them as their own training base. So that's the funding of this Lahore uh, elementary flying training school. But then if you read into this chapter, you find that the British, from the beginning to the end, they didn't like this training school, right? They find a lot of trouble to, to, to the Chinese. They just want to kick the Chinese out as soon as possible, right? And, uh, and uh, the most interesting episode happened by the end of Second World War. When the British said, okay, it's the end of the war, you can go now, right? And when the Americans didn't no longer supply money and, and clothing to the Chinese, and when the Chinese government want this, this, this cadres and these pilots, trained pilots back to China to join the Chinese civil war. So all, and, and these pilots themselves, they want to go home, right? So all of them want to go home, 
want to go to China, but they they cannot. They cannot. They can even they cannot find a ship back to China because there is a post-war chaotic situation in Asia at that time, right? And then I mentioned this Indian Navy mutiny, Royal Indian Navy mutiny, right? And uh, which happened in nineteen forty-six, in early nineteen forty-six, that disrupted uh, almost all Indian shipping lines. Right, because this navy, this Indian sailors, they protested. They even mutinied in most Indian ports. So more, most of these ships, they cannot enter into the port. They cannot, they cannot leave the port, and and the Chinese cannot see even secure a single ship to bring them back home. Right, they stayed in Lahore for eight months without. Food without closing their life were very hard, right? And finally, in April and May, nineteen forty-six, they find a ship in where in Madras, in Madras. So they went a long way from Lahore to Madras. You can imagine, right? So very long way from Lahore to Madras and find a ship, and from Madras they 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 return home. Return to China, so it's a very fascinating story about this post-war chaotic. It's a post-war how ordinary people like these Chinese pilots and the Chinese engineers in this training school, they were you know involved in this very chaotic post-war uh, situation. Absolutely. I mean, I think this chapter sort of reminds us of how important or how in- interesting, not, not, not only interesting, but how important it is and how, uh, you know, how significant it is that one needs to sort of put more focus on sort of studying China in relation to South Asia and the fact that, you know, the origins of the Chinese Air Force is in present day Pakistan and like, you know, like this Lahore Elementary um, flying training school sort of played this role in sort of this very um, significant period of uh, of of history of, of of India Indian and Chinese history um, it, it sort of reminds us of the significance and importance of your book um so in the conclusion of the book you reference the case of the deportation order of Liu Yiling uh, a Gomindang uh, official in India uh, to illustrate the continuities from the British colonial government to the independent post-colonial Indian government uh, regarding the Chinese population in India. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about this um, and about the wider implications of what you uncovered through your research? Uh, and I think throughout this interview, you've, you've already said this, but how does your book change our perspective of 20th century Sino-Indian relations? Yes, that's uh, yeah, that's the end of my book. But it's also a beginning of some kind of a new project. It's about the re-evaluation of India-China relations in the twentieth century. Because previously we thought when we study India-China relations, it's very I mean it's a very oversimplified version. Old old time India-China relations are all about what kind of the, what we call the Buddhist. Buddhist connections, right? The Indian, you know, Buddhist came to China to spread the Buddhism in in, in China, and also the kind of some kind of the artist, uh, art history uh, interactions, right? And in a modern time, India-China interactions have been studied from from a very elitist perspective. That scholars focusing on intellectual interactions, right, and the political interactions. But uh, my question throughout this book is about what is about the experience of these ordinary people, right? How could they shape India-China relations, and how India-China relations shaped their everyday lives, right? That's a very little long story, right? I think this book is the first of all to explore this ordinary people's experience in India-China relations, right? And this conclusion part is also about so-called inherited colonialism, right? I agree with a lot of scholars of modern India that 1947 is not a breaking point for Indians. Because 
Normally we thought that okay, nineteen four before nineteen forty seven is colonial period, and after nineteen forty seven is an independent period, right? So it's a breaking period. It's a breaking time here. But I find that okay, in terms of China policy in India, nineteen forty seven is nothing at all, because there is a strong continuity before and after nineteen forty seven. That the Indian intelligence officers in they inherited the anxieties, the worrisome, and the imagination, the groundedness imagination, of British intelligence, uh, British intelligence agency in 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 India. That they thought China was a great threat to the even existence of India itself. Because from the British side, when you look at into this. Periods intelligence reports. You find that the British they're really afraid that the Chinese would replace the British and colonize India. You cannot imagine, right? Today, if you ask any Chinese that the Chinese want to colonize India, they will take it as a joke, right? But if you look into these British archives, you find that the British seriously think that all of this. Chinese smugglings, Chinese deserters are actually well organized by the Chinese government in a big conspiracy to colonize India, <laughs> right? So because of this concern, because of this anxiety, the 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 British they designed a lot of this, you know, China information group and the China information sector. To collect all information relevant to to the Chinese, of course, there are communist threats in the later years, right? But I think communist threat was combined by this grand or bigger picture of of China threat, right? And after nineteen forty seven, when the British left, their Indian subordinates became the new boss of Indian intelligence sector. And they inherited the British thinking that the Chinese want to colonize India, want to threat the very existence of an Indian state, right? So now you can find that it's not a very simple border issue; it's an issue of existence of the independent state. That's why they were so nervous, they were so angry, they were so frustrated. They never trusted the ch- any Chinese policy, right? So this kind of the mentality lasted even today. So I find that the China-India tensions cannot be simply addressed because it's not a border issue. We thought that it's a border issue, and we ask ourselves to, to. I always ask myself, well, it's just this very useless or very unimportant borderlands that influence these two countries' interactions. Why we are not very stupid, right? Just for this little piece of land, we fight against each other. We don't trust each other, right? But I, then I, you know, after writing this book, I find that it's not a border issue. It's a colonial mindset that really shaped the India's foreign policy toward China. So this is what I want to say in. In the conclusion part, but I also want to show the agency of the ordinary people, how the behavior and activities of these Chinese soldiers, Chinese smugglers, deserters, their behavior shaped and and even you know influenced these British colonial anxieties and China's state building projects. Thank you, Professor Chow, for taking so much time uh, from your busy schedule to talk with me today、uh, about your fascinating book.、Um, so, before we end, may I ask you what you are working on right now and what's next for you? Yeah, because you know it's very ironic. We talked a lot of this India-China tensions even today, right? And my work also has been influenced, impacted by. India-China tensions, because as everyone knows, that China scholars are not allowed to enter into India these days after the pandemic, right? So we, we, our, our, our visa been cancelled by the Indian government. 
So I have to turn my attention to some other places if we cannot enter into India in the near future, right? So my first book is about the Indians in China. My second book is about Chinese in India. Now I'm thinking of this somewhere in between, right? How India and China been collected. So I'm now writing my third book, which is about Burma and the Malacca Straits, right? I find that in the nineteenth in the nineteenth century, the, the the Indian government, they are facing they were facing a a dilemma of the Malacca Straits. So previously, our common sense is that if you want to bring Indian people to China and bring Chinese commodities to India, you have to cross the streets of Malacca. Right in Southeast Asia, and but I find that the Indian government, they they didn't like the streets of Malacca, they didn't like the street settlements. They thought that it's a too long way for them to get into into China. They want to find the shorter route to China throughout the nineteenth century, right? That's why they keep. Going from Burma, try to find the they keep trying to find the path from northeast India to Burma to Yunnan and to Yunnan China, right? So that's my third book. That how the British Indian government try to address their Malacca dilemma and how this Malacca dilemma shaped their 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 their, their, their policy in Upper Burma and try to you know find a, find an alternative road to to China in the nineteenth century. So this is a new project, and I'm now still writing it. That sounds excellent, and it also shows how prolific you are. That you've all you've just finished your second book, but you're already uh, working on your third book. Um, so I hope it's a, it's a trilogy. Actually, I have to say it's a trilogy: Indians in China, Chinese in India, and India China in between. Then after after writing the third book, and maybe I I need to find something new. <laughs> but I, I the, the, now the primary uh, objective is to uh write this book and uh, finish this trilogy right india china trilogy what i call oh that's great that's great to hear um and i hope our, our listeners will keep up with your scholarly work in the future um, um and 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 sort of read it uh, read your next book too uh, when it comes out um and of course, I yeah, also in just a few years you will inter me again. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would be great. You're always welcome to the New Books Network. So I look forward to the next opportunity uh, to interview you again. Yeah, my my honor. It's really my honor, and thank you so much for your time to you know to help me figure out and look into that book again because. You know, for scholars, we always have this very bad habit that when we finish a book, we feel lazy to, you know, look back into it and to talk about it. I have a lot to talk. I I got really, really lazy to, you know, to reread the book and to re rethink of that book. I just want to, you know, find a new project to refresh our ideas. But you, you give me this opportunity to, you know, to to go back and to to to. Uh, reread the book again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed reading the book, and I hope our listeners, the listeners to the podcast, they purchase your book, and I hope they read the book. If if they don't purchase it, I hope they can get it at their library and uh, read the book. Um, so this was an interview with Professor Yin Chao about his book Chinese Sojourners in Wartime Raj, which was published by Oxford University Press in two thousand twenty-two. Uh, so thank you so much, Professor Chao. Thank you.